water Someone has to find a way to save the day Let this be the hour to speak truth to power Hi, everybody. I'm Charles Ortlib. Welcome to my weekly show, Truth to Power. That was Chris Davidson singing Truth to Power, a song I wrote with him. Chris is a British singer-songwriter who was discovered by Freddie Mercury's manager. You can find that song and all the other songs I've written with him on iTunes, Spotify, and all the streaming services. Truth to Power is also the title of my book, which is a history of the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic, and my newspaper, New York Native, which I ran from 1980 until we went out of business in 1997. On my show, I explore a lot of the unresolved stories we covered about the politics and science of AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. And if you think these issues only affect a tiny minority of people, please stay tuned because you have some surprises coming. Anyone who sees what is going on in AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome science, or I should say pseudoscience, knows we are living in what Hannah Arendt calls dark times, an expression meant to capture the period of political and existential atrocities in the first half of the 20th century. She writes in her book, Men in Dark Times, quote, I borrow the term from Breck's famous poem, To Posterity, which mentions the disorder and the hunger, the massacres and the slaughterers, the outrage over injustice, and the despair when there was only wrong and no outrage, the legitimate hatred that makes you ugly, nevertheless, the well-founded wrath that makes the voice grow hoarse. And still, it was by no means visible to all, nor was it at all easy to perceive it, for, until the very moment when catastrophe overtook everything and everybody, it was covered up not by realities, but by the highly efficient talk and double talk of nearly all official representatives who, without interruption, and in many ingenious variations, explained away unpleasant facts and justified concerns. When we think of dark times and of people living and moving in them, we have to take this camouflage emanating from and spread by the establishment or the system, as it was then called, into account. If it is the function of the public realm to throw light on the affairs of men by providing a space of appearances in which they can show in deed and word, for better or worse, who they are and what they can do, then darkness has come when the light is extinguished by credibility gaps and invisible government, by speech that does not disclose what is, but sweeps it under the carpet by exhortations, moral and otherwise, that under the pretext of upholding old truths, degrade all truth to meaningless triviality. Unquote. But Hannah Arendt held out hope that good things could happen in dark times. She wrote, quote, Even in the darkest of times, we have the right to expect some illumination, and that such illumination may well come less from theories and concepts than from the uncertain, flickering, and often weak light that some men and women in their lives and their works will kindle under almost all circumstances and shed over the time span that was given them on earth. Unquote. I think that those of us who see what is going on in AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome have a sense of deja vu as we read those words by Arendt. We feel like we are living in a time of wrong and no outrage. 
We know that being angry all the time only makes one ugly and hoarse and friendless, but one can only remain angry in the situation we are in. Unlike people like Laura Hillenbrand and Jennifer Brea, those of us who can see clearly what is going on know there is nothing secret or mysterious about it. Something horrible is happening in plain sight, but it is not visible to all because people don't really want to see what is happening behind the veil of AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome, fraud, and deceit. To borrow again from Arendt, much about AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome is, quote, covered up not by realities, but by the highly efficient talk and double talk of nearly all official representatives who, without interruption and in many ingenious variations, explain away unpleasant facts and justify concerns, unquote. We are living in a period when there are huge scientific credibility gaps in what the public is being told about AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. Insofar as the CDC and NIH control public health information and manipulate the invisible government from which these credibility gaps emanate, that system is totally corrupt. You could call it a kind of biomedical dark times ATM that just keeps giving and giving. And insofar as the CDC and NIH have become assembly lines for scientific fraud and propaganda, they have degraded truth into a constant flow of fake science. But those of us who retain some hope, almost as a sheer act of will, do occasionally find people who shed some light in these dark times. On today's show, I focus on two people in Australia who I think are shedding a certain amount of light. My name is Dr. Val Turner. I'm an emergency physician at the Royal Perth Hospital in Western Australia. For the past decade and more, I've been a member of a small group of scientists who have questioned the HIV-AIDS hypothesis. Put simply, we have argued in many published scientific papers that HIV is not the cause of AIDS, and indeed there is no proof that HIV exists. Some of you listening to this program may feel that such a viewpoint is quite preposterous, even crazy. Indeed, at one level, I would have to agree with your point of view. The HIV theory of AIDS seems as impenetrable as the principle of Archimedes and the laws of Newton and Einstein. But perhaps I could remind you of something attributed to the renowned theoretical physicist Niels Bohr, who said that some ideas are crazy, but also crazy enough to be true. Indeed, there is a strong historical precedent for arguing the non-existence of HIV. In the mid-1970s, Dr. Robert Gallo, the current US HIV scientist, claimed to have discovered the world's first human retrovirus, which he named HL23V. For five exciting years, this virus was presented as a breakthrough in the quest to discover the cause of leukemia. However, in 1980, when it was proven that Antibodies to HL23V resulted from everyday exposures to a host of non-viral factors. This virus suddenly disappeared from the annals of science. It is now regarded as a monumental and embarrassing mistake. It is never mentioned and no longer exists. It is the belief of the Perth group of HIV-AIDS dissidents that when there is widespread acknowledgement of the fact that antibodies to HIV arise, in circumstances which have nothing to do with the virus, 
and we will argue that this is always the case, then there is no reason, no scientific reason, for continuing to believe in the existence of HIV. This is a view shared by others now. In the October 19th edition of the Toronto Star, a report appeared following a meeting organised by the local chapter of the 10,000-strong North American AIDS dissident group, HEAL, that stands for Health Education AIDS Liaison. The meeting was addressed by Nobel Laureate Biochemist and Molecular Biologist Dr. Carrie Mullis, who described how for the past 10 years he has been unable to obtain an answer to the relatively innocuous question, where and what is the proof that HIV causes AIDS? Eventually, Mullis even challenged HIV's discoverer, Professor Luke Montagna of the Pasteur Institute, but to no avail. Let me read you Mullis's account of this conversation from the foreword he wrote for Peter Duisberg's book, Inventing the AIDS Virus. With a look of condescending puzzlement, Montagne said, Why don't you quote the report from the Centers for Disease Control? I replied, it doesn't really address the issue of whether or not HIV is the probable cause of AIDS, does it? No, he admitted, no doubt wondering when I would just go away. He looked for support to the little circle of people around him, but they were all waiting for a more definitive response, like I was. Why don't you quote the work on simian immunodeficiency virus, the good doctor offered. I read that too, Dr. Montagna, I replied. What happened to those monkeys didn't remind me of AIDS. Besides, that paper was just published only a couple of months ago. I'm looking for the original paper where somebody showed that HIV caused AIDS. This time, Dr. Montagno's response was to walk quickly away to greet an acquaintance across the room. Mullis was eventually led to the conclusion the reason there were no papers proving that HIV was the cause of AIDS was that there were no such papers. Nowadays, Mullis agrees with the Perth group. Quote, no one has ever isolated HIV. No one has a bottle in their lab called HIV. End of quote. Thus it is small wonder that the English science journalist Neville Hodgkinson has described the HIV theory of AIDS as the greatest scientific blunder of the 20th century. It may be helpful to recall that AIDS dates from 1981 when exponentially increasing numbers of gay men in several large U.S. cities developed two previously rare diseases, the rapidly fatal fungal pneumonia, known as pneumocystis carini pneumonia, or PCP for short, and Kaposi sarcoma, a malignancy of the skin and internal organs. Following the discovery that many of these patients had low numbers of certain immune system cells, known as T4 lymphocytes, in their blood, AIDS became regarded as a consequence of immune deficiency. The problem then became one of finding out why the T4 cells were depleted. Given the scenario of promiscuity, it did not seem at the time unreasonable to postulate the action of a sexually transmitted microbe. The most favoured was a retrovirus because, although these were enigmatic remnants and disease-causing orphans of the Nixon decade war against cancer, Two are nonetheless believed to be genuine viruses and have a predilection for T4 cells. It was easy to propose that a putative AIDS-causing retrovirus could kill off T4 cells, leaving the body prone to opportunistic organisms, 
and cancers which normal human bodies readily resist. In 1983, Luc Montaigne claimed to have discovered such a virus, sometime later called HIV. The same claim was also made a year later by Dr. Robert Gallo from the US National Institutes for Health. Since I want this to remain principally a scientific talk, I will deliberately avoid the polemics that occurred between the Pasteur Institute and Gallo's laboratory over whether Gallo misappropriated the French virus. Besides making the same discovery as Montaigne, Gallo also announced proof that HIV causes AIDS in the development of an antibody test. Later on, when antibodies to HIV were actively sought and found in individuals other than gay men, principally drug users and hemophiliacs, it seemed to clinch matters and the HIV theory has never looked back. Patients, physicians, public health officialdom embrace it with the zeal of true believers and nowadays HIV truly does look as secure as Archimedes, Newton and Einstein. To that, the HIV theory really does beg the crazy question. This state of scientific serenity was not to last long. In 1987, the highly revered virologist Professor Peter Jersberg from Berkeley, California, published an invited paper in the prestigious journal Cancer Research. In this paper, he concluded that HIV does not cause AIDS. His principal argument at that time was there was insufficient HIV in insufficient T4 cells, even when patients were dying, to do harm. Duisberg calculated that the alleged number of T4 cells lost daily at the behest of HIV was about the same a man would lose cutting himself shaving. Such a low viral burden was an acknowledged fact, but reaction to Duisberg's bombshell immediately led to the closure of ranks and the marginalising and shunning of one of America's most outstanding scientific minds. Eventually, it deprived Duisberg of all research funding. Into this fray stepped Perth biophysicist Eleni Papadopoulos Eliopoulos. She had begun to research AIDS at its inception in 1981, and by the time Duisberg's paper appeared, she had already received two rejections from the scientific journal Nature for proposing an oxidative stress chemical non-infectious theory to explain the genesis of both low T4 cells and AIDS. The theory had the added bonus of explaining the several laboratory phenomena inferred, although mistakenly in Eliopoulos' view, as proof of the existence of HIV. In Eliopoulos' view, what united AIDS patients and those at risk of developing AIDS was not an infectious microbe, but excessive exposures to a variety of noxious chemical influences that had in common the ability to oxidise cellular constituents. This led to the gradual poisoning of the body in such a manner that it became vulnerable to particular diseases. On the one hand, while Duisberg posited HIV as real but harmless, on the other hand, Eliopoulos argued that the set of laboratory data inferred as HIV was an epiphenomenon. This was an idea considerably backed up by experimental evidence gathered in the retrovirological literature well before the AIDS era. That was Dr. Valander F. Turner, who is a member of the Perth Group of HIV-AIDS Dissidents.
He graduated from the University of Sydney in 1969, is a fellow of the Royal Australian College of Surgeons, and a foundation fellow of the Australian College for Emergency Medicine. He practices at the Royal Perth Hospital in Western Australia. Now here is Eleni Papadopoulos Eliopoulos, the senior member of the Perth Group, being interviewed in the movie House of Numbers. You and your colleagues not only state that HIV does not cause AIDS, but you take an even greater leap and say HIV does not exist. Is that correct? Oh, it is partly correct. We do not say that HIV doesn't exist. It may exist, but the presently available data does not prove its existence. But how can you say that when world-renowned scientists like Dr. Gallo and Dr. Fauci say HIV does exist? Are you telling me and the world that they're all wrong? No, what, I, what we're saying is there is the evidence there, the data in the scientific literature, which is published. Scientists interpret data differently, and we interpret the evidence one way, and they interpret it in a different way. So in our view, the evidence does not prove the existence of HIV. We've all seen pictures. We've seen electron micrographs of HIV. How can you say something that we see isn't there? You didn't see electromicrograph of HIV. What we see is electromicrograph of particles which look like retroviruses. But uh, it's one thing to look like and another thing is to be a virus. Then he took the lymphocytes, which originated from bruised uh, lymph nodes. He took these lymphocytes and cultured them with the lymphocytes of a healthy blood donor. And there, again, he detected reverse transcriptase activity. So Montagnier found reverse transcriptase activity. And according to him, this proved that the retrovirus was there. But the, the only way to say that the existence of reverse transcriptase or the detection of reverse transcriptase activity proves the retrovirus was there is only if reverse transcription was specific to retroviruses, which is not the case. In fact, today nearly everybody accepts that reverse transcription or reverse transcription activity is non-specific to retroviruses. In fact, at present, everybody accepts that reverse transcription is present in all normal cells. In fact, as far back as at the beginning of the 1970s, Gallo himself have shown that normal cells, when put in culture and they're stimulated or they're cultured with, with PHA, they will start um, having reverse transcriptase activity. In his book, The Virus Within, Nicholas Regish, the late ABC News producer and a friend of mine, wrote, Quote, in December 1995, a five-member research group at the Royal Perth Hospital, led by medical biophysicist Eleni Eliopoulos, made the charge that eight scientists made a colossal error in declaring HIV as the cause of AIDS. Unlike California maverick Peter Duesberg, who claimed HIV did not cause AIDS, the Perth group had instead raised the stakes by questioning the very existence of HIV, unquote. Rigish also wrote that they argued that Gallo and the French researcher Luc Montagnier 
had not followed some fundamental rules in molecular biology to adequately extract what they claimed was a retrovirus from human cells. Rigish pointed out that the Perth group felt that Gallo and Montagnier had never detected pure HIV by using what they believed was the gold standard, which was virus isolation. If they had been successful in convincing the world of that fact, the HIV theory would have been recognized as basically a kind of Ponzi scheme. They, of course, never used that kind of language, but perhaps they would have gotten more attention for their allegations if they had. Rikish pointed out that the Perth group argued that tests for HIV were not specific for HIV. In essence, they were saying the whole HIV theory was a crock and that everything that was based on it was a case of garbage in and garbage out. Eight science that was based on HIV was essentially a Potemkin village. Rigish wrote, quote, it is easy to see why mainstream researchers might hesitate to explore any detail of the theory proposed by the Perth group. The idea that HIV is really genetic material arising out of cells and possibly harmless material at that seemed too outlandish to those who had spent years determined to solve the mystery of how HIV destroys the immune system. Should the Perth group prevail, it would mean that thousands of scientists worldwide had wasted their time. There had been powerful political pressure to find the cause of the syndrome, and so after, the funding for HIV research had become so plentiful. Under the right political and economic conditions and the pressure of peer persuasion, it is not inconceivable that science can build huge edifices on the barest of scientific findings. And once the edifice is built, it is extremely difficult to dismantle. Over time, media reports of one aspect or another of the establishment view strongly reinforces it in the minds of the public. When we think of AIDS, we think of being either positive or negative for HIV. The medical concept has become deeply ingrained in our culture." End quote. As someone who has read John Crudson's book, Science Fictions, on the sloppy and crooked science of Robert Gallo, it is not hard to believe that Gallo cut all the corners on HIV research and that HIV was never truly isolated and that something else is going on in the patients that has given scientists the impression that they are dealing with something that isn't even there. But the Perth group has the same problem that Duisburg has. They didn't settle for blowing the whistle on HIV. They also concocted their own theory of what AIDS is, based on the junk science of the CDC's epidemiology of AIDS, and they ended up basically blaming AIDS on the gay and drug lifestyle. With one hand, they seemed to be trying to save the gay community from a massive HIV fraud, and on the other hand, they seemed to be pointing the finger at gays and others and saying that you did this to yourselves. If the CDC's basic epidemiology was at all trustworthy, there might even be some validity to what looks like scapegoating gays for their lifestyle. But as I say, the epidemiology or definition of AIDS is junk science. So you could say that the Perth group hypothesis and the Duisburg hypothesis about the cause of AIDS are really junk hypotheses. Like Duisburg, the Perth group didn't do their due diligence. Their brilliant critiques of the science of HIV may ultimately be judged a great contribution to science, but their critique of AIDS itself sadly misses the mark. There are two 600-pound 
gorillas in the room which both the Perth group and Duisburg ignore. One is the virus HHV6, and the other is the chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic, or the non-HIV AIDS epidemic. Chronic fatigue syndrome, which looks more and more like the bottom of the AIDS and HHV6 iceberg, completely undermines the CDC's AIDS epidemiology. As soon as one recognizes chronic fatigue syndrome as part of the AIDS epidemic, all of the AIDS epidemiology goes out the window, every single bit of it. About HHV6 in the Perth group, Regish points out that the Perth group never speaks about the issue of HHV6 in AIDS. Regish writes, quote, hard-pressed to keep up with research in their own highly specialized domains, scientists often remain ignorant of data related to their work until someone shows them the new material. Even after this information gap is breached, new ideas still may not have much immediate impact. Like most people, scientists generally do not change to broaden theories in which they have invested so much effort." End quote. I think that like Duisburg, the Perth group's glass is half full. They have shed some important light on the massive fraud that is HIV research, but they never call it fraud and they never call it what it essentially is, a Ponzi scheme that is maintained by the CDC, Anthony, Fauci, and the rest of the AIDS establishment to this very day. But their biggest problem is that they blame AIDS on the gay lifestyle. There is something about coming in contact with the word gay or homosexual that seems to make most heterosexual scientists just get a bit jiggy, so to speak. But on their way to scapegoating the gay community, they do make a very compelling point about the role of oxidative stress in AIDS. But they even queer that finding, so to speak, by blaming oxidative stress on lifestyle rather than the family of viruses connected to HHV6. Now, a quickie definition of oxidative stress is this. Oxidative stress reflects an imbalance between the systemic manifestation of reactive oxygen species and a biological system's ability to readily detoxify the reactive intermediates or to repair the resulting damage. Disturbances in the normal redox state of cells can cause toxic effects through the production of peroxides and free radicals that damage all components of the cell, including proteins, lipids, and DNA. Oxidative stress from oxidative metabolism causes base damage as well as strand breaks in DNA. Now, rather than asking if there is a dynamic virus causing the oxidative stress in AIDS patients, they point the finger back at the gay lifestyle under the veil of talking about risk groups, which really is just code for calling AIDS a gay disease. So it is no wonder that the gay community didn't take a close look at the Perth group's argument that HIV had never been isolated, which meant that the entire gay community had been hoodwinked by the AIDS establishment. That's why the gay community gave the cold shoulder to the Perth group and the Duisburgians. Yes, they told important truths about HIV not being the cause of AIDS, but the paradigms they offered to replace that one with were both unbelievable and vaguely scapegoatish and homophobic. It's a shame because the work of Duisburg and the Perth group is worthy of a Nobel Prize if they had just focused on trying to convince the world about what is not the cause rather than crossing into the zone of blaming the gay community for the epidemic, they would be heroes rather than pariahs. But I have to be very grateful. They helped me to see 
that we needed to go back to the very epidemiology that the Perth group and Duisburg accepted. They helped me see that the epidemiology which separated AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome is both homophobic and racist. One never hears Duisburg or the Perth group talking about the homophobia or racism of the AIDS epidemiology. In some ways, on that score, they are in bed with the Centers for Disease Control, the very institution that has turned Duisburg and the Perth group into international scientific pariahs. It's very sad that their contribution to our understanding of AIDS comes wrapped in the blindness of heterosexism. I hope history looks beyond their homophobic paradigms and recognizes that they did contribute to the process. Another scientist who has contributed a lot of light to our understanding of AIDS is Etienne de Harvin. As you know, uh, when I was, let's say, more actively involved in the uh, RA group, I was always struggling for that group to present a, a united front. I feel that our chances to bring down the dogma uh, of the orthodoxy, our chances are considerably better if we show up as a united front. And <clears throat> but maybe you will, you will find the statements I'm about to make a little bit excessively provocative. And uh, to justify myself, I don't want to give an abbreviated biography, but just tell you a teeny little bit of a story which will help you to put me in the picture some, somehow. Let's go back 53 years. <laughs> um, uh, Manhattan East Side, 68th Street at Sloan Kettering, where I just arrived as a fellow uh, as a pathologist, as a fellow in electron microscopy. And I, one day, uh, I was working at the brand new electron microscope we had installed uh, at Sloan Kettering at that time. And uh, my work was, my program was entirely uh, uh, related to a recent discovery made by Charlotte Friend of a uh, virus-induced uh, leukemia in one specific strain of mice. And one day, Charlotte Friend called me in the lab and said, Etienne, <coughs> I have a young fellow from NIH who is so anxious to see viruses uh, on the screen of the electron microscope, viruses in the leukemic mice on the screen of the microscope. Uh, could, could you see him a few minutes? I said, oh, no, no problem. What's his name? Oh, his name is uh, Robert Gallo. So Gallo came down. Uh, he was uh, indeed a fellow at NIH at that time, and we spent a full hour staring at the screen of the, the brand-new electron microscope I had just helping installing at Sloan Kettering at that time. And he was most impressed to see on the screen these viruses we speak so much about. That's in 1956. <clears throat> so I already indicated how important I feel it is for all of us to present 
uh, a, a united front so that we can make recommendations for research, recommendations for treatment, recommendations for prevention. And in a way, it's unfortunate that somehow two distinct positions, not to say group, I'm trying to avoid that word, uh, have been uh, obvious for the past couple of years. Uh, indeed, <coughs> there are two radically distinct positions. One is to say that uh, the uh, HIV exists but is a harmless passenger virus. The other position is saying that simply uh, HIV does not exist, period. There are problems with these uh, two positions. <clears throat> because neither of them uh, is really fully compatible with the scientific available evidence. To claim that HIV is a uh, harmless virus would at least imply changing its name because if it's related to immunodeficiency, which is an extremely severe medical condition, we could not say that a harmless virus is named HIV. In addition, as an electron microscopist and having been involved for all my scientific career in research on electron microscopy of viruses, I know very well that pathogenic as well as non-pathogenic viruses are both perfectly visible under the electron microscope. The idea that the virus is harmless or non-pathogenic is no explanation for any difficulty we, might ex we do experience in visualizing them with the electron microscope. The difficulty we have with the number two position is that it's a, f it's a very fragile position to, to try to defend. Uh, because the non-existence of HIV uh, would be immediately confronted with a picture we are going to see later on in the 1983 uh, Pasteur Institute, Barry Sinoussi, and uh, Luc Montagnier's paper, uh, the classic paper with the title of so-called isolation of the, the AIDS virus. And uh, there is a picture, an electron microscope picture in that paper on which we are going to come back later. And you will see that we cannot ignore that picture. If we start developing our analysis by picking up uh, 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 among all the published evidence what we lack and what we, do, what we don't, then we are doing just as bad work as the orthodox is currently doing for the past 25 years. In addition, simply to state that HIV does not exist would leave very little 
uh, understanding for the fact that actually uh, nucleic acid sequences are routinely identified in the blood of AIDS patient in what's regarded as most hypothetically the search for viral load by PCR methodology. So in view of these difficulties with these two positions, I believe that if we want to have more credibility, we as a group, in our struggle to shake down the orthodox dogma, we uh, have to reach for a more coherent, cohesive analysis of including all available data and not picking up among that accumulation of literature what we like and what we, dis what we don't. And <clears throat> an alternative analysis is therefore urgently needed. My suggestion to you today is to consider the fact that human endogenous retroviruses, HERV, can no longer be ignored in AIDS research because HERV do interfere heavily with the interpretation of AIDS research and may offer the alternative explanation of the published data. That was Etienne de Harvan speaking to a Rethinking AIDS conference in 2009. According to Wikipedia, Dr. Etienne de Harvan is a Belgian-born pathologist and electron microscopist. He is former president of the Electron Microscopy Society of America. Born in Brussels, he did most of his work in New York City, Paris, and Toronto. He did pioneering research work on viruses mostly related to murine leukemia. He was hired by Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, where he worked alongside Charlotte Friend and studied viruses, mostly in mice systems, and the causation and incidence of leukemia and other malignant diseases related to those viruses. Later, he provided the first description of a viral budding. While at Sloan Kettering, de Harvan was part of a team which discovered virus-like particles in cells taken from patients suffering from Hodgkin's disease. He became professor of cell biology at the University of Cornell and later of pathology at the University of Toronto, where he researched the marking of antigens on the surface of lymphocytes. As former president of the Microscopy Society of America, he published several papers mostly related to cancer pathologies and electron microscopy procedures for viral explorations. End quote. In a paper titled Human Endogenous Retroviruses and AIDS Research, Confusion, Consensus, or Science, he writes, quote, Human endogenous retroviruses are confounding factors in HIV-AIDS research that cannot be ignored. Evidence suggests that viral load may actually be measuring retroviral nucleoside sequences associated with human endogenous retroviruses. Human endogenous retroviruses also provide a valid explanation for the presence of retroviruses recognizable by electron microscopy in the original 1983 publication from the Institut Pasteur and may account for claims of innumerable mutations of the putative HIV pathogen. 
the interference of human endogenous retroviruses in AIDS research brings into question the subject of study in so-called AIDS research and the very existence of an exogenous HIV pathogen itself, unquote. In his paper, he concludes, quote, claiming that HIV is a harmless passenger virus raises at least two critical problems. First, if HIV is harmless, it cannot be linked to immune deficiency, a very severe pathological condition as implied in its name. Therefore, the name of the virus should at least be changed in order to fit with a claimed harmless character. Secondly, in the general classification of animal virology, very large numbers of viruses are non-pathogenic, as was well illustrated in the 1960s in a special conference at the New York Academy of Sciences under the title, Viruses in Search of Diseases. Obviously, all non-pathogenic, that is harmless, viruses are clearly visible under the EM. Pathogenic and non-pathogenic viruses look identical under the EM. In AIDS research, retroviral particles were observed by EM only in complex cell culture systems, never directly in the plasma, nor in the tissues of any AIDS patient. Claiming simply HIV does not exist is not satisfactory either because it fails to explain the presence of retroviral genomic sequences in the plasma of AIDS patients and the EM evidence for retrovirus particles in the historical 1983 Pasteur paper. Others have previously emphasized that human endogenous retroviruses cannot be ignored and that they actually represent confounding factors for human retrovirus discovery. Their role having been confirmed and amplified, this review shows that human endogenous retroviruses, in addition, offer a rational alternative interpretation for the two above-mentioned problems. The existence of endogenous human retroviruses has been known for some time, but their interference in HIV-AIDS research has yet to be widely appreciated. Of course, HIV should not be considered a human endogenous retrovirus since the hypothetical HIV is supposed to be an exogenous infectious microorganism, while human endogenous retroviruses are fundamentally endogenous, non-infectious, vertically transmitted, defective viruses. Still, human endogenous retroviruses have been a confounding factor in HIV-AIDS research and have caused confusion in interpreting the concept of viral load. Moreover, Human endogenous retroviruses put HIV researchers on the wrong track, creating the illusion of continuous HIV mutations, mutations that improperly serve to explain the extreme difficulty in preparing anti-HIV vaccines. However, difficulties in developing anti-HIV vaccines might not be explained by constantly mutating HIV, but rather by a lack of exogenous HIV. As emphasized years ago by Papadopoulos, Lanka, and others, there is no scientifically verifiable evidence to confirm the existence of a hypothetical exogenous HIV. However, stating simply that HIV does not exist is an incomplete statement that fails to explain the complexity of HIV-AIDS research. To that statement, one should always add that human endogenous retroviruses have heavily interfered with HIV-AIDS research in a way that cannot be ignored. Adequate understanding of human endogenous retroviruses as confounding factors opens the way to a better, more objective analysis of AIDS research. Finally, the question as to whether HIV exists 
or whether researchers have been studying a harmless passenger virus is a question that should be subject to open debate and careful consideration of scientific evidence or lack thereof. Alternative explanations for findings should be decided by the scientific evidence, not by consensus. The advancement of our understanding of AIDS demands nothing less. End quote. Now, one thing that Etienne de Harvin does not talk about is the possibility that the cause of AIDS is a harmful endogenous retrovirus. And that brings us to the work of Bridget Huber, a scientist at Tufts University, and Jose Montoya, the Stanford University researcher I interviewed last week. Bridget Huber published a study indicating that a virus associated with AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome, namely HHV6, actually reactivates an endogenous retrovirus which acts like a superantigen. Long story short on superantigens is that they cause the immune system to go haywire. Sam Savage wrote about Uber in Red Orbit. Quote, Bridget Uber, PhD of the Tufts University of Medicine, presented evidence at a medical conference that suggested that a reactivated ancient retrovirus embedded in the human genome may be active in chronic fatigue syndrome, CFS, and multiple sclerosis patients. Danish scientists at the same conference suggested that the activation of this retrovirus, dormant in healthy individuals, could be the reason why autoimmune conditions worsen with viral infections. Quote, patients with profoundly fatiguing diseases such as MS and CFS may be particularly susceptible to human endogenous retrovirus K18 activation, unquote, said Dr. Huber. The announcement was made at the International Symposium on Viruses and Chronic Fatigue Syndrome and Post-Viral Fatigue, a satellite conference of the 6th International Conference on HHV6 and 7. Dr. Huber found that both MS and CFS patients whose illness had been triggered by infectious mononucleosis were at a higher relative risk for containing human endogenous retrovirus K18 variants known to induce superantigen activity. Superantigens are proteins that are able to induce a strong, undifferentiated T-cell response believed to deplete the immune system over time. Viral activity and or immune activation has been shown to trigger human endogenous retrovirus K18 activity. Both Epstein-Barr virus infection and interferon alpha administration are associated with human endogenous retrovirus K18 activity. HHE6 activates human endogenous retrovirus K18 as well, said Danish investigator Per Holzberg, MD and professor from the University of Aarhus in Denmark. His PhD student Vanda Loridsen Turkanova presented this data at the same conference. Furthermore, this retrovirus activation may have important consequences for autoimmunity, he added. Dr. Huber's study suggests that endogenous retroviral activation in chronic fatigue syndrome and multiple sclerosis could produce some of the symptoms associated with both diseases. She has received a National Institute of Health grant to study these issues. Per Halsberg has done extensive research on the role of EBV and HHV6 in multiple sclerosis. Unquote. Now, interestingly, here is the closing of last week's show with Jose Montoya. He talks about getting close to a possible cause of chronic fatigue syndrome. I think that there is the potential of, of, of a third player in ME-CFS. It's not for sure HIV, but it could be 
a third pathogen that could share the um, characteristics of HIV, could be one that shares the characteristic of herpes viruses, could be a, a chimeric form of the two, like in an area of the uh, Hillary Johnson's book is, is nicely described. So I haven't said that it's not that, but it doesn't mean that it's transmissible through physical, skin, respiratory, sexual contact, because there are compartments in, in, in humans that are not accessible to either testing, that are easily accessible through testing, or that are not readily available for contact transmission. So so I, I think that you are asking, the, it, it, this is my humble opinion, you are asking the wrong questions about about AIDS versus versus CFS. So I don't see any evidence that is a human immunodeficiency virus, that, that is a retrovirus in the way that is transmissible easily through co contact surfaces or blood or sexual secretions. I don't, don't see the evidence for that, but I haven't said that there is no possibility that something similar can be in a body compartment that when a major infectious load gets to the patient, that can be reactivated and that could trigger and perpetuate chronic fatigue syndrome. And we are looking for such a for such an agent. Have you made any progress? We are looking for it. I said we are looking for it. Um, I have to ask one little uh, one last question, which is, um, what about the role of endogenous retroviruses? Like, no, that's what I was referring to. That's okay. what I was like HERV K eighteen, which is induced right. by HHV six, is that which right. acts right. as a super right. antigen? Is that something you're at all interested in? Or yes. we are looking for. We are looking for that or something like that, correct. Oh, but that doesn't make endogenous retroviruses, doesn't make, if we ultimately find that, and I'm collaborating with another group at Stanford whose their primary interest is another disease where they found inflammation and they found endogenous retroviruses as, as the trigger of the inflammation for that disease. And so, so I, 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 I am very aware, and we are in that lead. We're following that lead. So the world's leading chronic fatigue syndrome researcher may be inadvertently on the same path as the scientists who challenge the HIV theory of AIDS, even though in many ways he's one of the creators and supporters of the dogma about HIV being the cause of AIDS. There he is, like Etienne de Harvin, talking about endogenous retroviruses in a disease that is characterized by immune dysfunction. Yes, he desperately wants to keep AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome separated. But if his recently developed 17 cytokine test for CFS, which he talked about in last week's show, is given to AIDS patients and they all have the same cytokine signature, and if the third agent he is supposedly looking for that seems to involve both a DNA virus and an endogenous retrovirus turns out to be in both CFS and AIDS patients, it may prove harder and harder to maintain the wall between the two epidemics. Lots of interesting developments may be coming down the pike. As Rachel Maddow likes to say, watch this space. I hope you enjoyed today's show and found it thought-provoking. If you like what I'm doing here, and want to become an unofficial supporter of the show, please just buy a copy of my book, Truth to Power, on Amazon. You can find more information about Truth to Power and all of my books at charlesortlib.com. That's Charles, O-R-T-L-E-B dot com. At charlesortlib.com, you can also find all the songs that I've written with Chris Davidson.
I think it's only fitting to close this particular show with an Ortlib Davidson song called I Can't Do It All. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and all the streaming services. to go for a little walk We need to have a little talk If there is a mission that's impossible You know I'm always the first to sign on want it to ever be said That I shirk my duty when I am gone It doesn't matter if I have a dream If you're not on my team I can't do it all I can do a lot What I've got But I cannot do it all Resistance. I may need your assistance If I should fall I think I can make it through But I may turn to you If I should stall Brothers, sisters, people I can do almost anything but I can't do it all No, I can't do it all I have the guts and the strength of mind I think I can make it To the finish line but When doors are closed And I'm denied that you will never hide Doesn't matter if I have a dream If you're not on my team I can't do it all I can do a lot What I've got But I cannot do it all Some resistance I may need your assistance If I should fall I think I can make it through But I may turn to you If I should stall Brothers, sisters, people I can do almost anything but I can't do it all No, I can't do it all When I face some resistance I may need your assistance If I should fall 
I can make it through But I may turn to you If I should stall Brothers, sisters, people I can do almost anything But I can't do it all No, I can't do it all